Well, our scripture text for the morning is going to be found in Mark chapter 15, if you want to open there with me, Mark 15. We'll be looking at verses 33 through 39. And we're looking today at the crucifixion of Christ, the, the high point of his ministry towards which he had set his face with, with such resolve. This is the, the climax of the Father's mission for Jesus here on the cross. And the climax not only of his mission, but also of his suffering. Here on the cross, Christ experienced the, the worst of the suffering and humiliation that he would in his earthly ministry, suffering even to the point of death, as we'll see. And as we look at the suffering of Jesus, um, you may wonder if my goal is to get you depressed by the time we leave. But the suffering of Christ is not a discouraging thing, and I want us to see that. As we look at the suffering of Christ, to see that actually in the suffering of Christ, we can find hope in our own suffering. Mark 15, beginning in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we look to your word, you would speak to us by your spirit. You'd reveal to us the hope that we could have in Jesus. That you'd encourage us in our suffering, Lord, and that you'd help us to fix our eyes on, on Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. We can find hope in our suffering in looking to Christ and the suffering of Jesus on the cross. And we're going to see that hope in, in two acts. Jesus said a number of things from the cross. Mark doesn't record them all. But he does record two cries in this verse, in this passage rather. First, in verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. And then in verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. It's the same Greek word underneath those words. Phone um, megale, a loud cry cry, two cries of Jesus from the cross, and, and we're going to use those two cries sort of as a rubric this morning. What do these two cries mean for us and for our hope in Jesus? But before we get to those two cries, we should set the scene, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Um, we've talked a bit about the timing of the crucifixion, but Jesus was uh, crucified 
at what was called the third hour by the Roman reckoning, which would be 9 a.m. The third hour is 9 a.m. Um, and um, we're told here that when the sixth hour had come, the sixth hour is noon, that a darkness fell over the land, and that the darkness stayed until around the ninth hour, which would have been around 3 p.m., which is approximately when Jesus died. And so that's sort of the timeline. Jesus was on the, the cross for approximately six hours. Um, we talked about the first three hours um, a number of weeks ago and, and how Jesus was, was being mocked by the passers-by. But now we're moving on to the second half of the crucifixion. After being on the cross in agony for three hours, a darkness fell over the land. The sun was blotted out and, and it was completely dark. You can imagine the kind of effect this must have had on those who were watching the crucifixion. Um, of course, there's Roman soldiers there and then some there kind of to mock Jesus. And, and then, of course, some of Jesus' followers, a couple of his disciples, and a number of the women who were following him. And as they were sitting watching this agony take place, all of a sudden a darkness falls over the land. And, and what an effect that must have had to, to cover an already somber scene in total darkness. And, and they'd, been, they'd been watching Christ on the cross up till this point, or maybe trying not to see him, but all of a sudden they actually couldn't see Jesus anymore on the cross. It was dark. But they could still hear his cries and the cries of the robbers on either side, hear the labored breathing. And at the ninth hour, after approximately three hours of this darkness, out of the darkness comes a cry, not with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus in agony on the cross. There's a lot to these words. I'm going to try and dig into them. This is actually a, a quotation of Jesus from the Psalms, from the Old Testament. We're gonna dig into what, what that means. But, but on, on the most basic surface level, these words of Jesus from the cross tell us that Christ suffered immensely on the cross. Physical, spiritual pain and suffering. And, and this should be a comfort to us, even at the most basic level. And here's why. Because we, in our own suffering, in our own difficulty, are sometimes prone to ask the question that Jesus asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you in my suffering? What on earth is going on? Are you even paying attention? Right? Sometimes we, we're tempted to think those things. And the comfort in looking at Christ on the cross is to see that God is not oblivious to the human condition. He is not oblivious to suffering. He's not oblivious to death. He doesn't turn away his eye. Jesus, who is the Son of God, God incarnate, did not turn his face away from the suffering we experience. He, in fact, took on human flesh, humbled himself to the point of becoming a man, and then humbled himself to the point of dying on a cross. Jesus experienced the greatest level of physical pain that he could have experienced in this life. 
and not only physical pain, but also spiritual and emotional pain. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ had a sense that God had actually forsaken him on the cross. That's because, as we'll explore a bit more as we go along, God the Father, as, as he brought the darkness over Jerusalem, was actually pouring out his wrath upon Jesus. Darkness is a sign of judgment in the Old Testament. Um, think about the plagues in Egypt. The, the second to last plague, it's darkness for three days as a sign of judgment on Egypt. And so here we have darkness for a period of three hours as a sign of judgment on Jerusalem who had killed their Messiah, but also a sign of judgment on Christ. Not because Jesus had committed any sin, but because Jesus had come to bear the wrath of God in our place, to bear our sins upon himself. So that on the cross, Jesus actually bore the wrath of his own father in our place. Jesus is no stranger to pain. He's no stranger to suffering. In fact, he's no stranger to death. The second cry here of Jesus from the cross was a death cry. Verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. Jesus didn't even shrink at the proposition of death. Christ, the immortal son of God, dead on a cross. And again, this, this should be a comfort to us in our own suffering, and our own pain. God, God's not standing off there in the distance indifferent to us. The Father actually sent the Son. The Son came willingly to die for us. The ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is actually a quotation from Psalm 22. If I were to sing, jingle bells, jingle bells. Right, right. The whole, the whole song comes to mind, right? right. If I were to sing, um, when peace like a river. Right. You don't think of just the first line. Actually, the whole, the whole, whole song comes to mind. So Jesus is quoting the first line of Psalm 22, which any onlooking Jew would have known probably by heart, right? The Psalms were the, the hymn book of Israel. They would have known this song. They would have sung this song since childhood. When, when someone said, uh, hey, let's sing, uh, my God, my God, how have you forsaken, why have you forsaken me? They said, oh, I know that one. That's Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 doesn't end at verse 1. Um, Kevin read, read the whole psalm for us this morning. Thanks, Kevin. Um, we, we won't read the whole psalm again. But it, let's turn there. Psalm 22. And it starts off from a place of despair. And you can see why Jesus chose this psalm to quote from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? because Jesus was, in a sense, forsaken on the cross. But the psalm doesn't end there. If, if the psalm ended there, it'd be a pretty depressing song. That's not where it ends. Like many of the psalms, 
there's a turn. Now, for a while, the psalmist, this is written by David, and actually prophetically, David's writing about Jesus, but um, he's crying out in, in difficulty. Verse six, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned and by mankind, despised by the people. Go back to verse two. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. It's a sense of abandonment. God, where are you? What are you doing? I'm, I'm crying out literally the whole day and I haven't heard anything. No answer from you. What's going on? Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And then 14 through 18, this is almost... Um, it's detail for detail. This is a, a prophecy about the crucifixion of Christ. Um, what is bones coming out of joint? His heart melting with his chest. Strength dried up. Tongue sticking to the jaw. Surrounded by scorners in verse 16. Piercing his hands and feet on the cross. Counting his bones, verse 17. And then, literally, this happened. They're d casting lots for his clothes. But the psalm doesn't end in despair. Verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. Notice the contrast. Verse two, oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. I'm crying out, but you don't answer. And then verse 24, he has not hidden his face from him. He has heard when he cried to him. Now, which is true? In a sense, they're both true, right? David, had a, he didn't feel like God was answering, so he cries out, like, why aren't you answering me? Why don't you deliver me? And then the turn in verse, verse 24, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him. He has heard. And this, this, this shift often happens in the Psalms where out of despair, the psalmist is like, well, God, where on earth are you? And then by the end, he's, the psalmist starts to remember Oh, yeah, this is who God is. God does hear prayer. God is faithful. And so I think what Jesus is doing on the cross, well, first of all, he's, he's voicing his sense of desperation. He's voicing his sense of abandonment. But Jesus also had hope. Jesus knew what was coming. He'd already told the disciples, listen, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed Three days later, I'm going to rise again from the dead. Jesus was crying out to God the Father on the cross in desperation. And he knew he would be answered. Three days later, the Father would raise him up in glory. Psalm 22 is not merely a psalm of despair. It's also a psalm of hope. There's, there's two questions that we're often prone to ask when faced with difficulty. 
when, when our hearts feel like they're being torn apart by suffering. One of them we've already kind of addressed, and that's, am I alone in this? Where is God? What on earth is he doing? We've already seen Jesus is not far removed from us in our suffering, right? Christ knows he's close to us. And the second question we're prone to ask is, is there any hope that this might end? Right? In my suffering, my pain, my sickness, facing the prospect of death, it's like, is there any hope that this could be overcome? I think everyone asks, I mean, ev- all humans suffer, right? It's just, it's part of life. The question is, is there any hope that suffering might end for us individually and, and for the universe as a whole, right? Is there any hope that we might be moving on to something better? And the second thing I want to see on the Jesus on the cross and his suffering is that his suffering gives us the promise that there actually is something better. There actually is hope that our suffering will end. And I think that hope is, is beginning to be foreshadowed here in Psalm 22. First, this sort of like individual hope that, that we might be saved, right? Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. And then verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Verse 30, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming of coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Even in the psalm Jesus is quoting on the cross in his moment of greatest suffering, he's running this song through his mind. Kingship belongs to the Lord. Let's turn back to Mark 15. Question arises. Okay, so Jesus' suffering is supposed to give us hope that there'll be an end to our suffering. How on earth does that math work? How are we supposed to see hope in Jesus' cries from the cross? I'm going to look at the second cry now. Verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus said here, but we're fortunate to have the other gospel writers which, which do record other words Jesus said on the cross. And just before Jesus died, he said a couple of things. Um, Luke records, I believe it's Luke, records for us that Jesus said, into your hands I commend my spirit. Praying to the Father. And the other thing Jesus said in the moments just before his death, it's the, the, the Gospel of John that records this. Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. Job done. Mission accomplished. What did he mean? What was finished? What did Jesus actually accomplish on the cross? I think he's actually echoing the last line of Psalm 22, by the way. 
They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. It is finished. What is finished? What was finished on the cross? What did Jesus actually accomplish by this suffering? How can this be the, the height of his ministry? Why would, any, why would anyone set out to come and take on human flesh to die? And we get our answer in verse 38. I'm going to flesh out what this means. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain of the temple in Jerusalem where the Jews worshipped was torn in two from top to bottom. And this is a sign to us of what Jesus accomplished. It's going to help us to understand to have a little bit of background, and we have to go all the way back to the beginning, really, and to the question of, what really is wrong with the world? Right? I think, I think everyone has a sense, this, there's stuff that isn't right. This is, this is broken, right? Um, when members of my own family have, have passed away, I've heard people say, this, just, this isn't right. It just feels wrong that they're not here anymore. Everyone has a sense that there's something wrong with the world, and there is, right? That there's something wrong with, well, our bodies, that's obvious, right? That our bodies gradually break down over time, that our, even our own hearts, right, are, are, are broken, right? We're prone to sin. Our, our relationships with other people are often fractured and tense and difficult, and, and where does all this brokenness come from and we can trace it all the way back to the beginning right? everyone agrees there's there's brokenness and suffering the the distinct distinctiveness of christianity is that we actually have an answer we actually have a diagnosis as to what's wrong when you've got a backache you you go to the doctor and say what's wrong because i want to fix it right i don't want to be in pain anymore if there's some operation you can do or a painkiller like help me out here right Diagnose me so we can fix it. The question is, what's the diagnosis of the world? What's wrong with the world? Donna's got the answer. Look, sin. The problem with the world is that the world has left behind our creator. If you read the early chapters of Genesis, we get the picture of Adam and Eve in the garden, and it's literally paradise. Everything they need, everything is good. And they're, on top of it all, they're actually dwelling in the presence of God. God comes and walks with them in the cool of the day. Living in, in full relationship with the, the God they were made to know and love and worship. And the, it's like, well, what happened? What, what went wrong between there and here, right? Because we're not there anymore. And that's what we call the fall. Adam and Eve, well, God had told them, given them really one guideline. There's a tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat it. Don't eat of that fruit. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And they ate of it. 
They disobeyed God, and they died. Not that day. Spiritually, they died that day. They fell, and then they died. And literally every human being since has died. We're tasting the fruit of the actions of our first parents, Adam and Eve, right? Because when you cut yourself off from the author of life, you die. Apostle Paul says the wages of sin is death, right? That's, that's what's wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world is that we're, we're actually in active rebellion against the God who made us and who made this world. We're under the curse of sin that we brought upon ourselves and that we, even individually, bring upon ourselves, right, by our sin. Not, none of us have lived a holy life before God, right? All have sinned. We all wander and we all stray. After the fall, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, and an angel was stationed at the door to keep them out. Out of paradise, which is one thing, but out of the presence of God. The fundamental problem with the world is our fractured relationship with God. And ever since the fall, because of our sin, we can no longer dwell in the presence of God. There's walls up. And that's what's going on in the temple. It's taken us a while to circle around here. But that's what's going on with the temple. In the Old, Old Testament, in the days before Jesus, God's people, Israel, God wanted to bless them with his presence. But because of their sin, they couldn't actually enter his presence. The, is when sinners enter the presence of a holy God, we get incinerated. God's perfectly holy. We're sinners. These, these, it's oil and water. And so that's what you, what you have in the, the Old Testament system, in the, in the temple, is God actually told them, build walls and put a curtain up, and I will live there I'll, I'll, I'll manifest my presence in a special way in the temple, but don't go in there. If you go in there, you'll die, because that's my presence. And so we've got walls and a curtain, and, and in, a, in a way, God was able to dwell among his people, but really only the high priest could go in there once a year, and that was just to like sweep up and make sure the incense was all right. And that was after a number of rituals to make sure he wouldn't perish on the way. The temple was a promise that the Lord wanted to dwell among his people. He want, the, the temple is a promise that the Lord wants to, in a sense, restore Eden. To bring us back to the presence of God. So what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? What Jesus accomplished on the cross was to remove the fundamental obstacle between us and Eden. What Jesus did on the cross was to bear the wrath of God which we deserve for our sin. Christ actually bore the full weight of sin on himself, even though he's sinless. He actually bore God's wrath in our place. So that when God looks at us now, he no longer sees our sin. He's already poured out his wrath upon his son. And when he looks at us, he sees instead only the righteousness of Christ. He sees us as sons and daughters. 
What Christ accomplished was to tear down the dividing wall between God and us. What Christ accomplished was to reconcile all those who believe in him to our Heavenly Father. What Christ accomplished on the cross was to tear open the curtain, not from bottom to top, as if you've got like two guys down on the bottom pulling on it. Top to bottom, who's up there? No one. This is God tearing the curtain, right? No more. No more guard at the Garden of Eden guarding the presence of God, right? This is the presence of God breaking out. What happened at the cross when Jesus said, it is finished, was Christ repairing the fundamental rip in reality that was torn open by the fall. And starting at the cross, Jesus is now in the business of making everything new again. Right? And we've, we've, we've sensed this in our own lives, right? As we've come to believe in Jesus and our sins have been forgiven, we're reconciled with him, we sense a sort of intimacy with the Lord, right? Not freed totally from the presence of sin yet, right? We're, we struggle, but with the promise that one day we'll actually be fully brought into the presence of the Lord, right? When we die or when Christ comes. And not just our hearts, right, but actually our bodies. We have the promise that, that one day Jesus didn't just die, he rose again from the dead. And so that when, when we come to him in faith, not only are we incorporated into his death, not only do our sins die on the cross with Christ, but we're also raised with Christ. And so the promise is that one day when Christ returns, there will be a bodily resurrection of the righteous, that all those who have, had, who have faith in Christ will be raised unto new life with resurrected bodies, which will never perish, never die, never be sick, never have pain anymore. Jesus is repairing the fundamental fabric of reality and the work started on the cross, right? It's finished. And not just us individually, right? Not just our, our bodies, but actually the whole of creation. Because our, our suffering in this world doesn't just have to do with our own pain. It has to do with the pain of those around us. It has to do with watching the news. It's like, This world is groaning. And the promise of Christ is that one day he will make it all new. I want to read a few verses from Revelation. And I, I just keep coming back to this. Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. No, amen. Notice what's paired there. The presence of God with the entire healing of the universe. When, when God will dwell again with his people forever, tears will be gone, pain will be gone. 
mourning, crying, pain, death itself will die. That's the significance of the curtain tearing. That tear was a sign of the repair. The fall, the lifting of the curse. Amen. I want to close by, by looking at a couple of people who reacted to Jesus' cries on the cross. First, in verse 35 and 36, you've got some bystanders who hear Jesus' quote from Psalm 22. And they wonder out loud, hey, maybe he's calling Elijah. Elijah was associated with the coming of Messiah. It's not clear here if they're mocking Jesus or if they actually believe this. I'm inclined to think they're probably mocking Jesus. Either way, there's a disconnect. They don't don't really understand what's going on. They've missed something. Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And then there's someone who gets it. Verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This was a hardened military man. A centurion was a commander of 100 soldiers in the Roman Empire. Um, this, is a, this is a significant officer in the Roman, Roman Empire. Um, This is a man who who would have prided himself on not being easily swayed by the words of others or by his emotions. This is a man working always to be in command of himself and those at his command. But this centurion, after standing there for six hours watching the crucifixion of Christ, hearing his cries, hearing these words, feeling the deep darkness of judgment settle over Jerusalem, is left to no other conclusion than that this man must be the son of God. He wouldn't have had categories really to understand the Jewish Messiah or all that was expected in Jesus. In fact, the, 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 um, the precise translation is, truly this man was a son of God. He didn't really understand the Trinity. He doesn't understand the incarnation. All he could sense from his limited perspective was, there's something going on here that's more than human. There's something here touching the divine. There's something about this Jesus that I just can't escape. Truly, this, this man must be a son of, this man, who is this man? And the question with, when we come to Jesus is, will we, Will we misunderstand him? Will we ridicule him? Will we ignore him? Or will we look to the cross and see Jesus and hear his words and say, there's just something I can't escape about this man. My prayer this morning is that um, if any of you don't know Jesus, if any of you are not Christians, As, as we've read together these words about Christ on the cross, that you'd, that you'd pondered this man, Jesus, and that you'd, that you'd pray to him, ask him to reveal himself to you, test him. 
There's something inescapable about this man. And the offer of hope is rich. So many people live their lives trying not to think about death, trying not to ponder the brevity of life, trying not even to utter the words, the word death, or to use the word funeral, because it's too terrifying to people who have no hope. But there is hope available in Jesus Christ, rich hope that we are not alone in our suffering and that de the death and pain and suffering of this world has an end date. It's on the calendar, right? This will not last forever. Our pain will not last forever. Because of Jesus, it is finished. And there is a tremendous hope and lightness of spirit that comes along for those of us who have faith in Christ. Think of those in our own congregation who are facing the prospect of death. Think of Herman. Trust in the Lord. He, he has hope. It changes everything. So I encourage you, if you don't have that hope, it's, it's there in Jesus. It'll change everything. And I encourage you to, all of us who are Christians, press on. There's, there's hope in our own suffering by looking to Christ and his suffering. He's present with us. He will Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that we would never be forsaken. I will never leave you, forsake you. Be because of Christ, we're adopted. We're in the family. Right? We couldn't get rid of ourselves if we tried. <laughs> the, the Lord, he holds on to those who are his own. And, um, and that's a wonderful thing. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a moment and, and remember the, the suffering of Christ and his death and also his resurrection and the hope that we have in him. Before we go to the table, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the crucifixion and the death of Christ. We thank you for not abandoning us when we were sinners, but when you were, we were yet sinners, you died for us. We thank you for your great love, the great grace and mercy you've shown towards us. Thank you for the freedom and the hope that we have in your name. Pray that you'd help us, Lord, to trust in you, to live lives grounded in the hope that is in Christ, and that you'd give us adequate opportunity in the coming days and weeks to share that hope with those around us even, Lord, just by our demeanor and the way we face whatever it is we, we end up having to face in the next two weeks, that they would see in us a hope and be forced to wonder why. Pray that you bless us, Lord, as we come to the table, that you'd be glorified as we, as we remember the death of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.